If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. The definition of encounter is to come upon or experience, especially unexpectedly. For those of us that are following Jesus, we've all had an encounter with Him at some point in our lives. Some of those encounters have been mysterious, like we read about where Saul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, and he was never the same after that. I was on the floor of a public bathroom. It was February 10th of 2001, and I was just I just started bawling. I was watching my tears hit the floor, and I just said, God, help me. And I have no idea why I said it. Or like the woman at the well that we read about in John chapter 4, who met Jesus, and despite what her culture might have shamed her for, Jesus offers her living water, and her life was never the same. It was really surprising to me. Like, my vision of Jesus was sort of like an ancient George W. Bush wrapped in a toga. And I was like, The character of Jesus can't be interesting to me. Like, I want to marry a woman someday. I'm very intellectual. This can't be true. But he just drew me in. Or like when Simon Peter meets Jesus and has an encounter with him while fishing, and he left everything to follow him. I would kind of walk into church every now and then, and I would just weep. And I didn't know why. My soul would just weep. And I'd walk out of there and be like, I'm never going in there again. And then I'd find myself walking <laughs> that was past so the difficult. <laughs> yeah, I just felt myself drawn in. You see, encounters with Jesus, they change us forever. These are stories of change. Hey, Derwin, welcome back to the happy hour. Yes, thank you. So glad to be back on the happy hour and particularly because you're from Texas and (laughs) I'm from Texas. So it makes it awesome. This is so fun. When I had you on, uh, I guess it was in 2020, was it? Yeah, 2020. It was my first time to meet you and I have just followed you and enjoyed everything you're doing. And so after I have someone on the happy hour, I feel like, oh, we're friends now. And so I'm like, oh, I, I feel like I'm having my friend back on the show. So welcome back. Absolutely. We are indeed friends. And so I enjoy following you and uh, your family. And so growing up in San Antonio, Texas, uh, my desire as a kid was to play football at the University of Texas. And I'll never forget when David McWilliams, who was the coach back in the late 80s, sent me a handwritten personal note. And that was the last thing I heard from the University of Texas. They had no clue I existed after that. So that's why I ended up going to Brigham Young. People go, why didn't you play for Texas? And I go, because Texas didn't recruit me. (laughs) And Texas is a place to be recruited. I love Texas football. We've talked about this before. I do want to say, when I started thinking about this encounter series, you were the very first person that said I wanted to have on because I had a vague memory of when we talked the first time of you telling me that when you were at BYU, A, you met your wife there and you also met Jesus. And like, I don't want to throw any assumptions on the table, but I know that Brigham Young is a Mormon university. Am I right? It is. It is. It is. Yeah. So I actually met Jesus after I left BYU. So I actually gotcha. met Jesus in the NFL. Oh, in the NFL. Even better. Even better. 
Okay, so uh, take us back. I'd love to hear how you grew up. What was your life like? Did your family go to church? Just tell me all the things about what life was like before Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. My mom was 16 when she was pregnant with me. My dad was 18 in 10th grade at uh, Thomas Jefferson High School. It was the first group that was integrated. So my mom was around then. And uh, my mom is uh, very, very beautiful, very, very fair-skinned. And so she caught hell from the Black girls, and she caught hell from the white people who called her the N-word. And then she comes and gets pregnant. And the school nurse said, go to California and uh, abort him or abort it. And I'm so thankful at 16, my mom said no. Wow, we're all thankful. Yeah, 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 indeed. And so I grew up in the hood. Like I grew up poor, but not poor because we couldn't afford to own the R. <laughs> but when you grow up in the hood, like you don't know because my world was like three square blocks. It was the Lincoln Courts projects. It was the park where everybody played. It was my elementary school. It was my middle school. And that was just your world. And so both my mom and my dad struggled with various issues. And so they were in and out of my life. After about fifth grade, I primarily lived with my grandma. And so my grandma and my granddad primarily raised me. And my granddad was an incredible provider. Like he taught me what hard work was. The man never missed work. Now he was emotionally distant. And now I understand he was a recovering alcoholic He had moved to San Antonio via the military. He was taking care of a lot of kids that were not his kids. And by the time I came along, I think he was just tired. Mm -hmm. But my grandmother, though, my grandmother protected me. She guarded me. And so we had a very, very special bond. But at about age 13, I figured out, okay, if I want my life to be different, it has to be me. I have to do it because... People in my life were inconsistent. It was chaotic. There were things that I saw that no child should ever experience that I thought was normal. I don't like guns to this very day, like even to hunt, because my first experience with guns is seeing a man get his brains blown out in the blood running down the street. Drug abuse, issues with police brutality, like that was just normative. And so there were a lot of things that I normalized that were very, very traumatic. And so at about 13, I told my grandmother, I I said, I don't want to be like the people in my family. And so I learned that football was a way out. When I was in eighth grade, my middle school football coach told my mom, if Dewey, that's what everybody calls me from San Antonio, Mm -hmm. if Dewey works hard, he could get a scholarship. And my mom said, hey, the coach said, if you work hard, you could get a scholarship. And I said, well, what kind of ship is that? And she said, no, no, you know, the young men who play football at the University of Texas, well, the school pays for their education to go there. And that planted a seed like, well, why not me? Now, here was the problem, though. At 13, I was slow and small with a big afro. But then at about 16 and 17, my body caught up with my work ethic and my dreams. And so by then I was at a school called Converse Judson, which is an incredible national power, state power. Recently, we've been losing to Austin Westlake. So we definitely need to change that. Austin Westlake is putting out a lot of good athletes. I know, but it wasn't like that. Like when I was in school, we would would punish them, but now Mm -hmm. they're like, uh, 
Good gracious. But anyway, <laughs> so at Judson, the coaches were Christian, but I didn't know it. I didn't know what a Christian was. Like we didn't go to church. My grandmother kind of had like a Jehovah's witness kind of thing. So we didn't celebrate Christmas. We didn't believe that the Trinity was true. Jesus was not God, but they eventually kicked her out because she would smoke and cuss. Mm. Mm. And so she just, granny just kind of made her own quasi religion, but we didn't pray together as a family. We didn't eat together. We didn't go worship together. And so like I had this God awareness, but I had no idea of the beauty of the gospel. The idea that Jesus living the sinless life, we couldn't live dying to death on the cross for us in our place to give us grace, raising from dead. Didn't know any of that. So for me, success was my God and football was my vehicle. So senior year, I have a choice. I can go to Texas Christian University, TCU, or Brigham Young. Yeah, TCU recruited me. University of Texas did not. I ended up being better than the players that they recruited in my recruiting class. I'm not bitter. No, not at all. (laughs) I had counseling. (laughs) Nevertheless, let me continue. So I have a choice, TCU or BYU. And I didn't know much about BYU except for this. They're on TV all the time and the mountains are beautiful. So I decided, okay, I'm going to go on a recruiting trip. And on that recruiting trip, it was gorgeous. The mountains, the snow, they put a brother on a snowmobile. (laughs) And I'm like, why in the world would I go to a Texas school to compete against Texas athletes when I can go to BYU, get a great education, be on TV and be a big fish in a small pond? And by the way, I could get a good education. And so the whole Mormon thing, I didn't care about theology. I'm like, look, they can believe whatever they want to believe. Uh, So when I get there, though, it's utter culture shock. So I grew up around Mexicans, black people, white people that were the Justin Ropers back in the Mm -hmm. day, Mm -hmm. the Wranglers. And I get the BYU and I'm like, what kind of white people are these? (laughs) So Mormon whiteness and Mormon culture was very different. But here's the beautiful thing about God's providence is me going to BYU allowed me to learn how to get along with people who are vastly different than me. So I get to BYU freshman uh, semester. I decide, well, I'm not going to go to class and they'll pass me. Well, BYU, they didn't play that. So I had a a football player. You thought that? Yeah, Uh I thought that. Yeah. I had a 1.41 GPA and they sent a letter to my mom saying I was on academic probation. And if I do this again, I'm gone. And she called me and said, listen, there's no jobs for you here. There's no future for you here. So you need to do whatever you got to do to stay in school. Like there's no coming back here. So second semester, my freshman year, I'm in the weight room and no one else is in there except for this one girl with a long ponytail and she's doing triceps extensions and her triceps were just ripped. Now, this is before I was a Christian. So my first thought was this. Wow, we could create some supreme athletes, me and this with some triceps, with some triceps. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, I hope she asked me to give her a spot. And she did. And I gave her a spot and then she just skedaddled away. And so a few weeks later, a lot of the athletes were playing basketball and I was watching her play and she was hitting three pointers. She was elbowing, dude. She was physical. She was beautiful. And so I was super courageous. So I asked one of my teammates 
to ask her if I could talk to her after the basketball game. <laughs> so she says, yeah, we talked for a little bit. And she goes, hey, I have a boyfriend. I was like, cool. So I respected that. And then about two weeks later, I saw her and I said, do you still have a boyfriend? She said, no. And I got them digits. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> and then that night we went to a dance off campus and we've been dancing ever since. Aww. That was over 32 years ago. And we just celebrated our 29th wedding anniversary. So my sophomore Congrats. year, we're dating. She takes me to this big building where there's a lot of books called the library. <laughs> She studies. I try to talk to her. She's like, hey, look, listen, I'm on an academic scholarship. And so I was like, well, I guess I'll study, too. So not only did my love life increase, but my academics increased. So I went to BYU, had a legendary career, became an All-American. She was on a track team. She was valedictorian. We were like Mr. and Mrs. BYU. Everybody adored us. Life is good. Life is great. We didn't really care what the Mormon theology was. You have to take Mormon classes, but we're like, hey, that's good for you, but that's not for us. We're doing great. So yeah. we get to the NFL, 1993. We're in marriage student housing and it's 400 square feet. We rented chairs for a quarter, a couch for eight bucks a month. <laughs> we ate top ramen. Life was great. And we're watching ESPN, April 25th, 1993, fourth round, 92nd pick, and I see my name on TV. I get drafted. She's crying. It's amazing. So for us, it's like we've made it to Nirvana. We've made it to heaven. We get there 1993 rookie year with the Indianapolis Colts. And it is utterly miserable. Mm. Oh, dream. my God. The dream was a nightmare. Mm. Number one, I had old school black teammates who didn't like the fact that my wife was white. I wasn't playing much and I didn't get along with a lot of the guys. And I went from being a hero to a zero. I went from being Moby Dick to a minnow. And it was like, oh my gosh, I want to go back to college where people <laughs> chanted my name. So first year was rough. Second year is better. Third year, I'm in my bag. I'm a team captain. I found my role. Uh, we're getting ready to have a baby. Everything is going great. Have a great year. And at the end of that year, I distinctly remember looking in the mirror going, there has to be more. So like I grew up on welfare. Yeah. And so I'm like the money that I thought was going to fix my family. It didn't. It made it worse. And the new clothes that I would buy, like I literally have 17 tailor-made suits. An Indian guy from Washington, D.C. would fly down. His name was Daswani. And Daswani would fly down, make me these tailor-made suits. And a part of me getting these tailor-made suits was so no one could laugh at my clothes anymore. I was the best dressed on the team because I thought what I put on the outside would fix the inside. You see, when they say that the clothes make the man, that's not true. It actually extenuated the insecurity. I couldn't love my wife the way she deserved to be loved. And here's why. I learned at an early age, if you get close to me, you'll abandon me, you'll reject me, and you'll find out I'm not worth staying. So therefore, I wouldn't give my wife true intimacy. True intimacy is in to me, you see. 
And I only let you come so far because if you get close, you could hurt me. Right. I couldn't I couldn't forgive my dad for being six blocks away and never going to a middle school football game, high school game, college game. And also, I wouldn't have put it this way, but I knew I needed forgiveness. Romans 12, mm-hmm. 2 says that the law is written on our hearts. And for people listening who are not people of faith, it means this, that we have this natural inclination to know that we need forgiveness. But the problem is, We try to do things to erase the red marks. And the harder we try to erase those blemishes, the bigger they get, right? So I was having this full-blown existential crisis. And like, man, morally, I need things to be forgiven for. Career-wise, the NFL stands for not for long. So when I get done, who am I going to be? And I grew up as a compulsive stutterer. So speaking wasn't a career option. And that terrified me that who would I be when I was no longer a football player to cover my insecurities? Well, God and his grace. So let me backtrack to 1993, rookie year in the NFL. And I noticed this guy on the team that's doing some strange stuff. He's taking a shower. That's normal. He dries off. Normal. He wraps a towel around his waist. Normal. Then he grabs his Bible. Not normal. Mm. Then he goes to my teammates and he asks them this question. He goes, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? And in my mind, I'm going, bro, do you know you're half naked? (laughs) And so I asked the veterans on the team, what's up with the half naked black man talking about, do you know Jesus? And they said, don't pay no attention to him. That's the naked preacher. So his real name is Steve Grant, but his nickname was the naked preacher. And he would ask guys after practice, do they know Jesus? And here's a little caveat about him. He grew up in Miami. He was a part of a gang. He went to University of West Virginia. At West Virginia, he heard about this thing called FCA, and he heard that the coach goes to this thing called FCA, and so he went to impress the coach. The coach was sitting in the front row, so he sat in the front row for two weeks straight. He did that. Third week, he's in the front row. The coach is not there, and he hears the gospel in a way he understands, and he gets saved. And the way he describes it is this FCA athletes next. I'm not sure. The way he describes is like this, this short white guy that looked like a leprechaun preached the gospel. Yeah. Fast track 20 something years. That leprechaun, his daughter did an internship at our church. Oh, my gosh. I love it. So let me get back to the story. So the naked preacher, one day I'm sitting in my locker and I'm like, oh, my gosh, here comes this crazy guy. And he taps me on the back and he says, uh, Rookie D. Gray, do you know Jesus? And like most people who don't know Jesus, I said, well, I'm a good person. I said, listen, I don't sell drugs. I haven't had a child outside of wedlock. I haven't shot anybody. I do good things. And he said, so what you're telling me is you're a good person compared to other people. But God says that a good person is in comparison to Jesus. I didn't know anything about Jesus, but I knew he was better than me. And that got the wheels beginning to turn. And so it was a five-year process of one, watching his life to see if it was really true. 
And I remember one day in the locker room, guys were horse playing and threw some tape and one guy ducked and it hit him in the eye and it made his eye swell. And that was a the football naked player. preacher. It hit the yeah. naked preacher. Okay. It hit the naked preacher in the eye, made his eye swell. I mean, you make money off your body. So that's right. nothing to play with. So the guy who hit him in the eye, he ran up to him and said, if I didn't love Jesus, I would hurt you. I was like, wow, this guy's pretty serious. And so over a five-year process of watching his life, listening to him share the gospel, on August 2nd, 1997, it was my fifth year in the NFL, we were in what's called training camp. We were in Anderson, Indiana at Anderson University, and it was after lunchtime. And I remember it was August 2nd because August 1st, we played the Cincinnati Bengals in a preseason game, and I stubbed my toe. I hurt my toe, and I had been experiencing some injuries. And I remember walking off the field, and a businessman who traveled with the team, I looked at him and I said, I think God's trying to tell me something. And that next day, as I'm walking back from lunch, I'm walking to my dorm room, and the best way I can describe it is there was a chasm in my soul. So I get up to my dorm room, and this is the days, Jamie, when the phones were still attached to the walls. And I call my wife and I say, I want to be more committed to you, and I want to be committed to Jesus. And I don't know how long the silence was, but in that silence, like I felt when I was born again, like I felt moving from darkness to light. But above all else, for the first time in my life, I felt loved. And the love was not a love that was earned. It was a love that was given. My whole life was based on if I do good enough, maybe my dad will love me. If I do good enough, maybe my mom will stick around. If I do good enough, maybe I can play in college. If I do good enough, maybe I can play in the NFL. If I do good enough, maybe I can stay in the NFL. And finally, for once in my life, someone said, listen, I don't love you because you're good enough. I am your good enough. I came because no one is good enough. That on the cross, I am your good enough. And in me being good enough for you is forgiveness and a new life and in the resurrection is a new power and a new mind and a new purpose. And so when that happened for three nights after practice, I would just cry and I would think, how can someone love me like this, knowing everything that I've done? And now I understand that that's grace. Grace says, I accept you where you are but my grace will transform you into who I want you to, to be. So I immediately began reading everything and everything I was reading, I was sharing. And so I played five years with the Colts moving into year six, the Indianapolis Colts told me, Hey, uh, thank you for being here. Uh, we've enjoyed your services, but we're not going to resign you. And I was just so frustrated and so hurt. But little did I know that sometimes rejection is God's protection. And so the end, so the Carolina Panthers offered me a contract and we moved to Charlotte. My wife and I were like, we are never going to live in the southeast of the United States of America. <laughs> I am quite sure everybody has a Ku Klux Klan hat on. There are going to be people on riding horses. And little did we know, Charlotte was the new South. It was absolutely incredible. After two weeks, we went from, we're not living in the South to, listen, we don't know anybody here, but we're staying. So year six, 
play with the Panthers. And I hurt my knee against the Dallas Cowboys. And by that time, I had experienced so many injuries and God was changing my heart that I was like, man, can I bounce back from this? And do I want to bounce back? But in God's grace, the Carolina Panthers put put me on what's called injured reserve. And so all I had to do was rehab my knee and read the Bible literally Mm. all day. And so I got paid the most money, a half million dollars (laughs) that year to rehab my knee and read the Bible. What a great gig. What a great gig. And I was angry. And now that I look back, God was going, I was preparing you for your next stage. And a lot of those resources were used to start Transformation Church. And so I had no idea to ever want to be a pastor, to be a biblical scholar, to be a theologian. All I knew is I love Jesus. And if Jesus could change me, he could change you. And my wife had no church background as well. She came to faith through a woman at work. And both of us were like just these raw people in love with Jesus. We had no denominational filters. We had no hermeneutical filters. And so we didn't read the Bible from a denominational lens or have background. Grace just made sense to us. Multi-ethnic church just made sense to us because that's what we're reading in the Bible where it says Jew and Gentile. So in 1999, I got invited to uh, speak at a youth event in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, somehow FCA had gotten my name. They wanted a professional athlete to come share their testimony. I'm like, what is a testimony? <laughs> it is. So they're like, no, you, you share how you came to faith. And I was like, no, I, I need to pray about it. Cause I was a compulsive stutterer. And I distinctly remember being in a shower and I'm praying and I'm crying. And I'm like, God, why do you want me to go? You know how hard speaking is for me. You know how difficult this has been. You know this is not a strength. And I sense God going, that's why I want you to go, because then you can only give me credit. And if I can raise my son from the dead, I can raise your tongue to talk. And so my wife and our daughter at that time was probably three. We drove down from Charlotte to Columbia and uh, I had note cards in my pockets and I was reading and blubbering and crying. And I think I gave the worst altar call invitation in the history of Christianity. <laughs> Tons of kids came to faith. And the next day, the phone just started ringing off the hook and people were inviting me to come share my story. Wow. Yeah. And so that's kind of how that got started. My wife is an incredible leader, gift of administration, prayer warrior, and she would organize everything and I would go and speak. And someone said, you should do a nonprofit. So we did that and called it One Heart at a Time Ministries. And then about 2005, both of us said, we can't understand why Jesus's church is so segregated with so much racial tension. But the nightclubs we used to party in look more like Revelation 5-9 of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And we begin to ask people, why is the church this way? And we got unbiblical answers. And God said, well, what are you going to do about it? I've gifted you. I've called you. You can criticize or you can create. And you created. God was gracious to us. And we didn't have a clue what we were doing, but he did. And he's used this powerfully to be a part of building Transformation Church, which is an intentionally multi-ethnic church that pursues and seeks Jesus and his justice 
We want to show the world that people can get along because Jesus has brought us together. God uses us to influence the church in America and the church in the world. And so it's it's really two very unlikely people. We're both unchurched who met at a Mormon school who didn't grow up in church. One was a compulsive stutterer. And uh, look what God has done. And look now I'm God. on the happy hour. Look, and now you're on the happy hour. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. I have one question and I have one thing that I just think is so amazing too is like I didn't know your background and I didn't know obviously that you were on academic probation with that one point something GPA and yeah. now what people don't know is you're actually Dr. Gray. So yes. I mean it's just crazy to think about what God has done in your life from that kid you know in eighth grade that thought if I'm going to change my life I got to do it to now Dr. Gray. Jamie it makes no sense. I'm the only male in my family to graduate college the only one who graduated high school for a long time. And I got a 16 on my ACT to get into BYU, which is the bare minimum that you could get. I couldn't get in there today. But to see God's gracious hand, now that doesn't mean I didn't work hard. It doesn't mean that I I didn't study. But what it does mean is I participated with what God wanted to do. And so for people that are listening God wants you to participate with him, that there is more in you because of him in you than you know. 
But there were a lot of uh, Jordan rivers that you got to walk through. I will never forget in the shower saying, hey, if I can raise my son from the dead, I can raise your tongue to talk. But you have to trust me. That doesn't mean that I still don't stutter. I've learned to cover it up. I've learned to maneuver. And even when I do stutter, it's a sign of, man, God is great. He's using a stutterer. And, and so there are going to be times where you have to walk in the Jordan River, so to speak, when the water gets up to your nose and God goes, now that's dependence on me. Now, God is not some sadistic where he's like, I want you to suffer to be dependent on me. No, no. God knows that our human nature is to choose the shortcuts. And when we choose shortcuts, the only one who gets cut short is us. And so God is calling us to trust him. And this is what we find out. What God wants to do through us is nowhere near as great as what God wants to do in us. I want the greatest part of my life not to be preaching, teaching, writing, but a life lived of loving my wife and my kids and humanity. Love that. My question that I had when you were talking was, you said you called Vicki on the phone from that training camp Yep. and uh, just told her, I want to... I want to follow Jesus. I want to love you better. And there was some silence. Where was Vicky and her journey with Jesus then? And how did she react to that? Yeah. So Vicky was six months before me. Okay. There was, yeah, there was a woman at her job. Vicky worked at a urban health clinic called the Blackburn in downtown Indianapolis. And she would come home for years like, hey, there's this woman at my job named Karen Ponish. And she's a good Christian. Like we didn't know what a Christian was. We just knew she didn't cuss and she yeah. was good and she prayed. So Vicky one day asked her, do you think demons are real? I don't know what that was about, but that was <laughs> the question she asked her. And Karen said, well, of course. Yeah, I believe that they're real. And over coffee, she said, um, Vicky, are you a Christian? And Vicky goes, well, I believe in God. And Karen said, well, being a Christian means this, that Jesus lived a sinless life that you never could, that he died on the cross in your place to forgive you, and that he rose again and you trust him for the rest of your life and you'll be born again. And Vicky kind of looked at her like, okay. And so as time went on, Vicky was born again and didn't even know it. And so one weekend while I was away playing the New England Patriots, she went to this old Presbyterian church. It was like a high church and kind of where the who's who went. And she had heard when she was a baby, she was baptized Presbyterian, but there was no evidence of her family ever being Presbyterian. But so she went and we didn't know it, but it was a mainline liberal Presbyterian church. They didn't preach the gospel, but the choir was singing a song. And the words were, and he died for me. And at that moment, when she heard those words, she just started crying, grabbed our daughter, ran out of the church, drove home crying like, oh, my gosh, Jesus died for me. And so somewhere along those lines over a year, she was born again. And so all she would pray is, Lord, I don't know what happened to me, but what happened to me, I want to happen to my husband. And so when she was silent, I think it was like, oh, my gosh. God did it. God answers <laughs> prayers. Wow. God answers prayers. And so we, uh, Vicki is, um, she was valedictorian in high school, valedictorian in college. She was a young dietitian of the year in the state of Indiana. She is a high capacity leader. Uh, she is a theologian in her own right, prayer warrior, incredible leader, organizer. And so we are ministry partners, whatever we do, we do together. You know what I'm saying? And so God knew exactly what he was doing, knew exactly who she needed, 
who I need, need, need needed. And so we lead and serve Transformation Church together. But in those early days, it was just this expiration of like, wow, you love Jesus too, so do I. So let's learn more about him. And so we would just go to Christian bookstores because I was still afraid to go into a church because my grandmother had thoroughly convinced me, like, you don't go to a church with a cross on it. So we would go and we'd read, we would read Henry Blackaby's Experience in God to get together. We'd read the Bible to get together. And just as we would read, we just, we just started just growing. But then here was another thing. Because my jo- because my grandmother had a Jehovah's Witness background and we went to a Mormon school and half of my wife's family is Mormon. The Mormons told us we were wrong and my grandmother told us we were wrong. But as a football player, I'm like, well, God must have a playbook, the Bible. So we would study the Bible. And then I was learning Christian apologetics and theology, but didn't know it. It was I wanted to honor Jesus. I loved Jesus. I love Jesus. And I wanted him represented well. And so therefore, as an athlete, what do you do? You study, you grind, you grow. And so early on, like theology and apologetics really shaped us and it really helped us. And then as a football player, this is one thing that I know. If you want to play good in a game, you don't study the playbook on game day. Right. You study the playbook all throughout the week. Well, the Bible has a word for it for that. I will meditate on your law day and night. I will meditate on the things of Christ. I will marinate in the things of, of Christ. And so the same way I memorized the playbook is the same way I approached the Bible because I just didn't want it in my head. I wanted it in my heart and then in my hands. Mm, Derwin, I am such a fan of hearing people's stories of how their lives were changed. And some of my favorite, I mean, some of my favorite are people who have zero background with church and then Jesus shows up and just changes their lives. And and I don't think having zero background is a way to go. Both of our children were raised, you know, having lots of background in church. But I love so much the fact that God is so real that he will use anything and any time and any anything mm-hmm. in your life to draw you near to him. And your story about the naked preacher, I'll never forget. And just the way that God, you could see the hand of him drawing you and Vicky towards him mm-hmm. for plans that more than you could ever imagine with what your life has done. And so I'm grateful for your story. I'm grateful for your life. I'm grateful for your church. I'm grateful for all you're doing in the world. Would you pray for our listeners that they too would, if they never have, um, that they would have an encounter with Jesus. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, let's uh, let's pray, uh, Father. I thank you so much that you look after the forgotten so that they will be remembered. That you look for the discounted so that they can be counted among your family. That your heart is for the broken so that you can mend them and heal them and love them. We thank you that in Jesus He walked among us to whisper our names to let us know that we're loved that forgiveness can be found, a new purpose can be experienced, that the pain of the past can now be used to make you, even though it was sent to break you. God is a chain breaker. And Lord, we thank you so much. And what I want to pray uh, specifically for those who are yet to encounter Jesus, that in surprising and beautiful ways, they would meet him. And when they meet him, they would see that he is everything that they've ever wanted and more, that he's the fountain of forgiveness. He's the firm rock that keeps us stable. He's the peace that we need. And above all, he's the love that we've been created for. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Derwin, for joining us on the Happy Hour Today for the Encounter Series. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Friends, encounters with Jesus, they change lives and they transform futures. My prayer for you as you listen to this episode today is that if you already call yourself a follower of Jesus, that God will renew in you a love and passion for sharing your own personal story of your encounter with Him with those around you. And for those of you that would not call yourself a follower of Jesus, or you're skeptical of His love, that something in this story today would captivate you and that your eyes and your ears and your heart would be open to the love that God has for you. Love that while we are still sinners, that God gave His only Son, Jesus, to die for us. And although the penalty and the wage of our sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And whoever, whoever believes in Him shall not perish but would have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Friends, if something today sparked something in you and you don't own a Bible, please send us an email and we'll send you one. You can email us at jamie at jamieiv.com. If you want to hear more stories like this about people having an encounter with Jesus, go to jamieivy.com slash encounter. Today's show was edited and mixed by the team at Podshaper. The show notes are written by Abby Castell, and the show is produced by Lindsay Sweeney, and I'm your host, Jamie Ivey. I hope you enjoyed today's show, and if you did, we'd love it if you shared it with a friend. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay, when the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.